This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and this is First Word, our study here at the Russell Moore Podcast through the Bible's first book of Genesis as we seek there the kingdom of Christ. And of course, uh, we're continuing on in uh, the series here in Genesis, and we're we're at the point where we're right after the flood. So uh, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 8 and verse 20 through chapter 9 and verse 28. So if you want to read through that ahead of time and pause here and do that, or uh, just mark in your Bible to sort of follow through as we go. Either way is fine. Uh, and of course, we're talking about Noah, really a familiar uh, name uh, from Scripture. Even people who don't know the Bible very well, they recognize the name of Noah. Noah also, at the time that I'm recording this, has had sort of a resurgence in terms of uh, baby names. Um, when my wife and I were expecting our fourth son, Noah was one of the names that we considered. But you know how you will sound out a name to see what it will sound like. And I realized Noah Moore would sound like a sort of passive-aggressive commentary on uh, how many more children we wanted for that fourth son. And so we decided, no, uh, let's go with a different prophet. And we went with Jonah, and I'm, I'm glad we did. But Noah is a, a really good name, and there uh, it has become uh, a popular name for boys uh, right now because Noah is an aspirational uh, figure. He's, he's not just someone who is a survivor and a pioneer, but he's someone that the scripture says who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And you see this going through this cataclysm of the flood. And then it picks up in verse 20 with this. It's what the scripture says. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So what you see happening here is Noah comes out of the ark uh, after, of course, the waters have subsided. The dove comes back with the branch, and then the dove doesn't return at all, signifying that that the, the, the moment is ending. And he comes out of the ark, of course, with his family. Uh, so this isn't just the individual. This is the individual and that the roots of this new civilization, this new creation there. And as he does, Noah comes out, and the first thing that takes place, the scripture says, is sacrifice. So there's a reason why God chose to tell Noah to take two of every unclean animal and seven of every clean animal because of sacrifice. Now, the reasonable question that comes up is, well, this is, of course, before the giving of the Mosaic Law. And, and before the sorts of dietary restrictions that we see, 
So how do you know what's a clean animal and what's an unclean animal? Well, we can only speculate that there was some sort of revelation that differentiated between these two. And Noah here makes the sacrifice. This is prepared ahead of time, and it is received. So what you have here is Noah offering up the sacrifice, and God receives this uh, aroma that is coming from the sacrifice. Now, of course, the Bible is using language here that would cause us to have an analogy and an understanding of what's taking place here. We, we obviously you know, would not think of God as a uh, as a, and a sort of a super but human being with nostrils who's being drawn to uh, the aroma here. But it tells us something about the receipt of this sacrifice. And this is going to be really important as we move through the the sacrificial system on through toward its ultimate end. And and by end, I don't just mean uh, the, the finishing of it, but the goal of it in Jesus Christ, who, of course, not only offered himself up as a sacrifice at the cross, but now is standing, uh, the scripture says, uh, as our mediator with his own blood. We, We come to God through that broken body and poured out blood of the Lord Jesus, who is standing triumphant before God right now. This is being uh, figured. There's a a signpost here in the text of of Genesis. And not only that, but the sacrifice is in the context of covenant, a covenant that's going to be explained out in more detail in, in just a minute. But God initially says, I'm not going to destroy uh, the earth again, and then he, in this way, and then he commits to an order and a regularity, seed time and harvest and summer and winter and day and night. There's a a regularity and a, a pattern and an order to the universe in a way that causes us to be able to have a certain amount of understanding of the world around us. We don't have anything approaching a comprehensive understanding but you don't have to understand astrophysics to know if you're a sailor how to read the stars and not to think that every night the stars are going to be different. Uh, You don't have to understand everything about geology to be a farmer and who understands and knows that the cycles of the seasons and planting and harvest and that those those patterns aren't going to be suddenly upended. And there's also here the sense of not just orderliness, but permanence. So uh, this is going to give stability. Uh, you, you have this language being used elsewhere. Jeremiah 31, uh, for instance, talks about uh, the regularity of seed time and harvest and summer and winter. And and you have other language used in, in Scripture about the foundations of the earth or uh, Psalm 89, as long as the moon shall endure. So it's permanent. And yet the word that God is giving to Noah is even more permanent than they are. That's why you have uh, the scripture telling us uh, later, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. 
So God says, I'm not going to destroy the world this way. He also does not give the indication that, uh, well, this problem is dealt with. Um, One might have the assumption, if you're Noah, or you're one of Noah's children or daughters-in-law, and you, you come off of the ark, you might assume, well, now we have that over with, all of that human wickedness, and, and now we've got a new start apart from that. No, he says that human wickedness continues into this new reality. That's, that's always going to be the case. And so as they come out of uh, the ark, then let's uh, pick up here in chapter 9 and verse 1. And the scripture says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I will give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So he's He's uh, repeating in in more detail what he has already said. And then verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, so what's happening here? is that when Noah and his family come off of the ark, notice what God does. He reestablishes and, and re-gives that mandate that he had originally given to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God has a, a future now for this earth that he has created. So the, the, the way that God is, uh, is communicating, I regret that I ever made man, That is now followed by, I have a hope for your future. I I want you to uh, continue the task that was originally given to you. And he talks about the fact that the uh, animals now will be in, in dread of you. So if you think about why this is, why there is this uh, sense of skittishness uh, uh, among the, the animal world, 
around human beings. You know, you can you can often see uh, situations where, in some communities, people start to feed deer, or uh, even in, in some communities, bears, and the deer or the bears or whatever the animal is starts to become accustomed to uh, human beings. That becomes a really dangerous. Uh, reality for animals. There's a reason why animals are meant to have a sense of fear and of alarm of something that could potentially be predators to them and and are running uh, from that. There was a debate that happened in my home state, Mississippi, several years ago. I remember laughing when I saw the newspaper article about uh, baiting deer and uh, whether or not people would bait uh, fields to hunt Deer, and they quoted a member of the Mississippi legislature saying, "Well, there's no sport in that. Why not just tie a cow up to the side of the barn and shoot it?" Uh, so there, there, there's a a natural fear of potential predators uh, that is part of the natural order. And I would argue that this is not just in terms of the relationship between human beings and animals, but of the relationship between human beings and everything. So again, go back to Romans 8. There is a sense of um, almost lament and almost uh, panic on on the part of the inanimate creation because the sons of God, uh, rightful rulers, are not yet seen. So the, the universe is groaning, Paul says. Now, God says here, just as I have given to you uh, the herbs and, and the, the vegetation seems to be pointing back to Eden, I give you everything. And so he specifically here is talking about um, the meat and the flesh of animals. Now, I think the reason that God is, is saying this, I give you every moving thing and I give you every herb is to signify uh, yes, uh, this is a new start for the human race, but there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There isn't anything that is cordoned off from you. There are sometimes within uh, within the church debates about whether or not it is uh, right to eat meat uh, or not. And the Apostle Paul addresses this in Romans 14. The eating of meat is actually blessed here. That doesn't mean that a Christian is required to eat meat. Uh, As a matter of fact, this is what the Apostle Paul uh, talks about in Romans 14. For some people, there is a conscience that says, I should not eat something that was alive in a sentient way. Or maybe they say, I'm looking... uh, we're, we're in the new covenant. We're experiencing a foretaste of the kingdom to come. And what we see in Isaiah's vision, for instance, is a reordering in the eschaton of the animal world that seems to remove predation. And therefore, I'm not going to eat meat. That is a perfectly allowable and perfectly reasonable position for a Christian to have. What's not reasonable, though, is to act as though uh, this is mandated upon everyone. Jesus, after the resurrection from the dead, 
before he enters into glory. But after the resurrection from the dead, he's eating fish in John 21. So there is a, um, at least you could say a concession to the eating of meat, but at most there is a blessing of the eating of meat. And also what you see indicated here is a sense of the temporary nature of the Mosaic covenant when it comes to the dietary restrictions. Uh, so that what God is uh, what, what God is doing is separating Israel out from the rest of the nations, making Israel distinctive in terms of what Israel would eat. But then after the resurrection of Jesus and after the sending of the Spirit, one of the really difficult issues uh, that takes place is eating. Simon Peter is, is given a vision of all sorts of unclean animals and is told, kill and eat. And of course, what's Peter's reaction? I can't do this. I think if you were Simon Peter, you would have to wonder if you were not being tested here to see, are you really uh, uh, someone who fears the, the Lord and who believes the, the scriptures. And he says, I would never do that. I've never eaten any of these things and I never would. And Jesus says to him, don't call unclean what God has called clean. Well, that's rooted here in the Noah account, which is before the covenant with Abraham, everything is given to all people in terms of food, but there is to be no eating of blood. Now, why? Why would, you know, there are so many things that are not discussed in this passage that we've talked about uh, before. There are all sorts of questions that we may have that simply are not answered uh, in the text of, of Genesis because we don't need to know the answers to them right now. Why would God take the time in this revelation to say, don't eat blood? Well, that seems to be, to a lot of us in contemporary Western civilization, that seems to be almost um, a detail that we just skip right over. Uh, I, I cannot count I started to say I could count on one hand the sermons that I have heard uh, on the eating of blood, and I can, but they were all preached by me. I, I could not count on one finger uh, the, the sermons that I've heard on the eating of blood. Uh, beyond that, I'm sure there are, but I haven't, uh, I haven't heard them. Uh, and yet this is something that keeps coming up in Scripture. Well, why? Well, think about... Uh, what blood means. And there is a visceral uh, sort of reaction to blood. I was, um, I remember, I still feel, feel bad about this. I was uh, 12 years old and my father had had a massive heart attack and was in the hospital, was not expected to live. Although that's been, what, 35 years ago? And my dad is just buying somewhere out mowing grass right now. <laughs> uh, so he, he came back from that. But at the time, uh, no one thought that he was going to live. We couldn't, as kids, go to the hospital. So I was at, at home, and my aunt was there with us, and I was trying to find something to occupy my mind. So I went to pick dewberries, which are, for those of you who don't know what these are, they're 
blackberries, except they grow along the, the ground. Uh, and so they're, they're not bushes that grow up. They're, they're sort of vines that grow across the ground. We had tons of wild dewberries all through the woods around my house. I went out and I just happened to run across some and, and picked as many as I could. And I just sort of folded up the white t-shirt that I was wearing and filled it with berries. So the berry juice was starting to seep through this white t-shirt. And I came walking home, holding it up and saying, Aunt Kathy. And she screamed. She was already you know, stressed out. Her brother's in the hospital or taking care of her nephews. And then she sees me. And what did she assume? She assumed that I had had some sort of accident and that I was holding my insides in. The the sight of this red liquid signified for her blood. And the sight of blood is meant to create a sort of horror. That's the reason why uh, when there's an accident on the highway, one of the things that is done almost immediately after somebody is taken to uh, the, the hospital and everything is is to clean up the blood because it's disturbing to people to to see this. And there's a reason why the myth of the vampire, uh, for instance, is 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 persistent in uh, across cultures and across time because there's an understanding that blood indicates life. So what God is saying here to Noah shows back up in the Mosaic law. Uh, so notice, for instance, in Leviticus chapter 17, uh, starting with verse 10, if any of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Also, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. Now, here's why this is important. It's because God has designed human beings to recognize that connection between blood and life and to recognize that connection between life and atonement so that the sight of the blood of an animal is meant to prompt a a, a mental picture and a visceral sort of reaction that reminds us of the blood of a human being which ought to be treated not as something common, but as something sacred. So when the Mosaic Law is talking about this, this is not part of simply the the dietary uh, laws that we see in the Old Covenant. This is for everybody. It's 
repeating something that God had already said to Noah. And this is something that comes up uh, early on in uh, the life of the church when the Gentiles start to come to faith in Christ. You have controversies that come up about uh, whether or not the Gentiles must observe the Old Covenant circumcision uh, law, whether they should observe the dietary uh, laws. Those those become controversies in the early church, and there was a, a council at Jerusalem to decide this. And this is what the conclusion was in the book of Acts. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you, the Gentiles, who, who are now believers in Christ, no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Okay, that seems odd to us. I mean, if you're thinking about taking people and discipling them toward what it means to be a Christian, uh, yeah, the the first thing that you would do is to say to someone, uh, sexual immorality is something that is wrong, and so change your behavior there. But it wouldn't occur to us to talk about blood eating or eating stuff that has been strangled. But this is something that is echoing back to something really foundational about human life. The blood implies mortality, implies dependence. You you cannot live without blood. And we we know even more now than uh, people would have understood uh, originally in hearing these words of, of the scripture, just how significant and important blood is. And you you think about the Abel passage that we talked about before. The blood is offered in the sacrifice from the animals, and then the blood of Abel cries from the ground. That's because Abel is mortal. He's vulnerable. He's dependent. And when God later on in the book of Exodus wants to remind Pharaoh or tell Pharaoh that he's a man and not a God, What's one of the things that he does? He turns that Nile River, which is supposed to uh, signify uh, life and the giving of life and and even to be deified, he turns it into blood, signifying you're not a god, you're, you're just a man. And you see that sort of language coming up again in Revelation chapter 8, 8, about the turning of the waters into blood. Well, that's because blood signifies human life, and human life here is seen as something that is not common, but something that is sacred. And when it comes to blood, that is especially true because of the nature of the sacrifice of Christ, that God is preparing people uh, long before to be able to recognize. So Hebrews 9.12, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, this is why, if you think about it, this is why Jesus created such a backlash when he was speaking at the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 6, after the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And Jesus has uh, massive crowds gathered around, 
And he says to them, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's John 6, 53. There's a a horrified reaction to this. People start turning around and walking away. And Simon Peter comes up and essentially says, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you saying this? And Jesus says, do you want to leave too? And Peter essentially says, yeah, I, I kind of do, but where else am I going to go? Well, why is that the case? I mean, first of all, there has to be a sense of this is getting creepy. This sounds culty to me to say that we have to we have to drink your blood and chew on your flesh. That that would be disturbing to anybody. But that's even more the case when you're dealing with people who have been taught since they were infants, you don't eat blood. You don't uh, eat human flesh. It's not to become common. So what God is doing here is training us to be able to recognize blood. And why? So we can recognize what it means to be human beings and so that we can come to recognize what it is to see Christ and him crucified. And then this goes on, not just the eating of the blood, but also the protection of the life of humanity. He says, the one who sheds the blood of man, his blood will be required by God. Now, here's why this is important. Uh, does this mandate the death penalty for I- anyone who has uh, committed murder? Uh, no, I don't think it mandates it. Uh, I think it allows it. And so I have lots of concerns uh, about the way that the death penalty is implemented in terms of economic disparities, racial disparities, um, uh, inconsistency in, in terms of, of how it's how it's applied. There are lots of arguments to be made there. What I would not be able to say is that in any case, capital punishment would uh, would be murder. I don't think that's the case. I think that God is saying here there there are some actions in terms of the taking of human life that require uh, or that uh, can forfeit someone's right to life. And what God essentially, though, here is saying is not establishing a a civil code as much as he is making a distinction between human beings and animals. I've given you uh, the the life of, of the animals, but you cannot take the life of a human being. And to talk about why, because it is in God's image that he created humanity. So the taking of innocent human life is an assault on the image of God. He's, he's signifying and recapitulating here that image of God. And then he goes right into the discussion of this uh, covenant, the, 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 the Noahic covenant. And sometimes we call that the covenant with Noah, but it's not just a covenant with Noah. It, it is. He says, I'm making this covenant with you, so I'm going to remember you. So just as Noah found favor at the beginning of this story, he finds favor uh, at the end. And with those after you, 
So God is saying there's a future for the human race. The the covenant promises that I'm making are not just for you. It's for those who are going to come after you. So you think about uh, how important this is in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, for instance, where Paul says that the things that were written previously were for your benefit upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So when he's talking about um, the, the drinking from the rock in the sojourn of the Israelites after the Exodus, uh, nobody there would have been thinking about how is this going to sound to uh, Christians in Corinth, <laughs> much less to Americans or Australians in, in the, the 21st century. That's, that's not what's going through their mind, but God is committing himself to those who come after, and he says, and with every living creature with all flesh. So God is committing himself not just to uh, individual human redemption, although he is committed to that, but he is committing himself to reconcile the world, the cosmos, to himself through Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm going to show you and I'm going to place a sign. So he places the rainbow, and again, this works in both directions. He, he tells them what they should be reminded of when they see the rainbow uh, of this covenant, that God's not going to destroy the, the world again by flood, that God is going to uh, ultimately redeem the world. Yes, but it also is a sign for him. When I see the bow in the sky, I will remember the sign. Now you say, that doesn't make any sense because God, of course, knows all things. That's right. God does know all things. But God has condescended to us to be in covenant with us in this way. I'll see the sign and I'll know. You'll see the sign and you'll know. So this is really similar to what you'll have later on, for instance, in the Exodus, right before the Exodus, when uh, the angel of death is, is going to be going through the land, taking the firstborn, and God says, put the blood on the doorpost, and when the angel of death sees the blood, he will move on. Okay, it's a sign. And so when you think about, for instance, uh, the, the signs that Jesus has given to us of baptism and of uh, the Lord's Supper, these are not just illustrations that God has given to us to help us to understand something. They're, they're signs that it's not just the, uh, the, the, it's not just what we can be reminded of, like a note on our hand. It's do this in remembrance of me, but it's a remembrance that is a covenant remembrance. And so it's the very uh, regularity of as often as you do this, the regularity of this, it's, it's not just sort of here are all the ways that bread is like flesh and here are all the ways that wine is like blood. It's the experience of, of eating and drinking that, that reaches us at a, at a deeper level. This is what God is, is doing. So God says to, to Noah, this is going to be a reminder to 
you, and it's going to be a reminder to me. Now, ultimately, of course, where is this going to lead? It's going to lead to the incarnation and the atonement uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is an ongoing sign. When, When God sees that one mediator between God and humanity, he sees the covenant that he has made. So this is, again, a picture that's, uh, that, that is meant to be explained in its fullness by the mystery of Christ. And in this uh, covenant, what, what God is signifying in the same way that he did uh, with the creation account, by telling us about the creation account, is to say this is not just about one tribe of people, although that's going to become really significant and important. Abraham is coming. Uh, in this text, and God is going to choose Abraham and is going to work through the family of Abraham and through uh, the people of Israel. But he's doing that as a blessing to the entire world so that Jesus becomes the savior of the world. And you can see that here with God promising the future generations and then also showing you how the nations of the world are coming out of this one family and are everywhere, not just the one covenant line, but everybody. That's indicating from the very beginning how universal the preaching of the gospel is to be and how universal that call to repent and to have faith and to be found in Christ is to be to every creature under heaven. That call is to be given. So you're not to, when you hear the gospel message and you hear that offer of forgiveness of sin, your question is not, well, wait a minute, is that for me or not? If you're a human being and you're alive, then you're called to look to Christ, to repent of sin, and to be delivered. That's here, even this early on in the Bible. And then we see the aftermath of this. Notice, starting in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in the tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done, he said to him, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Now, in talking about this, I can't help but as I read this, think about how twisted some people uh, in earlier generations, and I'm sure there are people now who try to do this, to say, well, the curse that is upon Ham, this applies to, this was the argument that was used often in the antebellum era of the United States. This applies to uh, people of African descent. Nowhere does the text indicate that at all. 
or to people who are have darker skin. Bible does not teach that at all. And this means that those people are to be perpetual uh, slaves uh, to others. Nowhere does the Bible teach that at all. This is a malicious twisting of the text to say that. God speaks to Ham and to Canaan, uh, his son. And what he is talking about here is the, the consequence of this breaking up of this family, a consequence that is uh, is not uh, permanent in, in any way because you have God bringing the entire human race back under one head uh, in Jesus Christ. So even if that were what God was saying, which he's not, that's not the point of, of this text and it's not what the text teaches, even if it were though, uh, it would certainly not be in effect after very long uh, in here. So that's not what this text is about. It's showing you instead something that we see happening repeatedly in Scripture, where uh, the covenant and the giving of a covenant is followed by disobedience. So think of, for instance, um, Sinai and the Mosaic covenant and the golden calf uh, that happens uh, immediately. Or think of when Jesus announces the giving of the new covenant in the breaking of the bread and the pouring out of the wine. And then immediately, what do you have? Judas betraying him. You have Simon Peter uh, denying him. Here you have an account where as soon as this covenant is given, the one who finds favor with God is drunk in his tent. He's a man of the soil. He's growing a vineyard and he becomes drunk. Now, why does God tell us this? I actually think that God is telling us this in order to, um, not in order to discourage us, but in order to encourage us. Because if we didn't have this, I think we might be tempted to think, well, Noah was righteous. Text tells us that. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. That means that Noah is a different sort of person than I am, and he can please God. Noah is a sinner in need of redemption. And Noah here is becoming drunk, something that the scripture repeatedly uh, from the Proverbs to uh, Ephesians to elsewhere, drunkenness is seen as a sin. Why? Well, because the, the bodily passions are meant to be governed by reason and imagination and affection. Those things are impaired. And so you have a human being acting in an almost uh, animalistic sort of way. And you can see that here with Noah. He is exposed then in the tent in terms of his nakedness, and there's a a shamefulness uh, to this. Now, understand why this is such a, a big event. Somebody was just telling me about somebody that he knew who was moving into the house that his parents had lived in 20 years before. And this person said, wow, that's really interesting. You're moving into the very place where you were conceived. Now, his response was to say, gross. Well, why? Nobody wants to think about their parents' uh, sexuality or their parents' uh, nakedness. Uh, That's that's a, a shameful sort of disorienting thing. And um, 
it's not just in terms of physical nakedness. I think all of us have seen people maybe who have fathered us or mothered us in discipleship or, or ministry who have uh, later, you, you, you see things about them that you just say, this is disappointing. Well, Ham here is, it seems, seeing this almost with a kind of delight. And that's something that it's easy to, to fall into, to say, have this sense of seeing the shame or the downfall of someone else and to see that as a way to compare yourself to them, to say, well, at least I'm not like that. Um, th- there's a dishonoring uh, there and also a sense of disillusionment. But uh, the other two brothers, what they do is they turn their faces backward. They, they, they notice, do what needs to be done. So it's not as though they avoid the situation or they enable the situation. This is not the kind of thing that you will see sometimes in some dysfunctional families where, as one person says, uh, the missing stare, uh, where you just get used to that missing stare and you start kind of, without even thinking about it, walking around it or walking over it. And people do that in family dynamics. Oh, daddy's not drunk. He's just having a bad day. That's not what's going on here. They do what needs to be done. They cover him, uh, but they do it in a way that also doesn't humiliate him or shame him. I, I was thinking about this text the other day when I was reading a review by Joseph Epstein of uh, of uh, a book about Philip Roth, and Epstein is saying why he doesn't like Roth. And he says, um, I first sensed why he didn't like Roth uh, when in his book, Patrimony, his book about his father, Roth describes a scene in which his elderly and ill father fouls himself with uh, going to the bathroom on himself at Roth's house. Roth helps clean up his father and the bathroom mess, describing the chore in perhaps too great detail. He then records his father beseeching him not to tell Claire Boom, Claire Bloom, Roth's wife at the time, about this humiliating incident. Roth promises not to do so, and so far as we know, he didn't. Instead, he wrote patrimony in which he told the entire world about it. Well, that's, that's what's going on here, is you have a sense of uh, a, a shame and a dishonor to a parent, and the, the sons are having to work through, do we treat this with avoidance? Do we treat this with delight or... Do we do what needs to be done, but we do it in a way that doesn't humiliate uh, our father? And so what goes out from there goes out into the rest of the world. And so you have this incident. I think what God is trying to say to us uh, is exactly what he says so repeatedly uh, throughout uh, the Bible. As I say to people so many times, there is no well-functioning family presented in the Bible 100% of the time. None. Instead, what God is doing is God is working through often some really, really awful uh, backgrounds and, and family dynamics to bring about his purposes. And so you can take 
a great deal of encouragement in this. If you're somebody who says, I, I come out of a really bad family background or a really bad church background or a really bad whatever, well, that has happened repeatedly in Scripture. And through this family, God ultimately is going to bring uh, is going to bring the entire human family under the headship of Jesus Christ. So, you know, I think about Noah Moore. Glad we didn't name him that. Glad he's Jonah Moore. But Noah Moore still would have reminded us a little bit of this text that there was to be more than Noah. Because the end of Noah's story, just like the end of your story and the end of my story, is bad news on its own. But it's good news as it connects to the story of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you haven't yet, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe the cover art and you'll find the show notes, including some details you might have missed. And we will pick back up here in Genesis next time. If you think about it, it helps us a lot if you leave a review uh, where uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. And we'll be back next time with another first word. This is Russell Moore. Onward. Onward.